0: Listen to two four seven Real Talk. I'm your host Julian Perry, and for this episode, I will be discussing substance abuse with Mister Jay Schiffman. We'll be right back. Good evening, Jay. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here on 247 Real Talk.
1: Well, thank you so much for for having me. It's a delight to talk to you.
0: Yes, this should be a great conversation. Um, especially as I was reflecting on, uh, on our podcast recording, I was thinking about the times that we're in right now with pandemic and all the stresses that... Uh, people individually and as you know are are facing and are struggling with and um i thought about your situation and so my first question will be to ask you to you know give us a general idea tell me and my audience about your struggles with substance abuse and misuse yeah so uh, you
1: know that is a great context for this you know i i am about uh well, I celebrated 10 years in recovery this spring uh and I I have I just feel so strongly for those who are either new into recovery or currently struggling or or are are maybe struggling with relapse at the moment um because we are going through something that none of us was was prepared for and even those of us who who dedicate ourselves to our mental health the way that I do every day it's been a tough time and, and I just have so much empathy uh for, for people who are struggling in that respect. And I hope that you know they are forgiving themselves uh for uh any sort of, of relapse or, or, or struggle in that respect because it's so difficult. Okay. You know, I I I personally come to this, um, in a very, uh, different way than, than the way that we op- We hear a lot on the news or, you know, in stories. Um, and, and I like to joke that <laughs> I I'm not the Nancy Reagan, just say no kid. I, I didn't start misusing substances, uh, after a friend passed me a joint underneath the bleachers in seventh grade gym class, you know, that that wasn't my story in the least bit. I was diagnosed with ADHD as a preteen, and um, this was the '90s when the uh, number of children in the U.S. who were diagnosed with this particular disorder uh, went. But it grew by over uh, sixteen. I'm sorry, 1.6 million in 10 years, and and, you know, at the time, the drug companies were churning out new medications as fast as uh, they could, and you know, I, I was put on a lot of these, and um, there were side effects. They knew that, and, and I think those are acted on more now. But at the time, um, unfortunately, my particular predicament was that I was a you know a guy going through puberty, and we all remember what that was like. Uh, I was on high levels of chemicals. And I also had some underlying issues of mental health. Uh, I've, I've had depression and anxiety my whole life. I struggled with OCD. And so all of this combined to, to put me in a pretty unfortunate situation. And, and sadly for me, my therapist saw all that and decided that what was going on was I actually had a worse mental health condition, uh, one that he labeled bipolar disorder and he started treating me for that. So. By my early 20s, I'm on five or six different medications every day, and I'm misusing every single one of them uh, severely. And I end up giving up. I I lost all hope, and I attempted suicide twice. I overdosed. I spent three weeks in a lockdown facility and three months in a long-term care facility, what we used to call a mental institution, and uh, finally decided there that, you know, I've been misdiagnosed, and I, I wanted to get off the medication and see who I was without this medication in my system. And so that's what I did. And in in the spring of 2010, for the first time in oh man, well over a decade, I had nothing in my system, and I was finally free.
0: Let's let's pause there for a second. Let's let's go over a bit of what you have told us so far. So you said you talked about you misuse the drugs and yes so my question is um what was it about the drugs that made you misuse them what what were the effects that made you want to misuse them
1: yeah that's a wonderful question uh so essentially you know i was struggling i <laughs> freely admit that and taking these medications as they were recommended, really wasn't doing anything positive for me or that, or so I felt, but when I took them at higher levels, I found positives in the use. Um, so one of the particular drugs that I was prescribed is a anti, um, uh, anxiety medication, um, that, that, At the levels I was prescribed really wasn't doing a lot for me. But when I took it at higher levels, uh, it it really, it it relaxed me. It took away all the anxiety. And to put it more simply, I found that if I took these drugs to higher levels, it allowed me to be comfortable, to be happy.
0: Okay. So... Um, you know, I, I mean, I don't know a lot about this, and I know many of my audience members won't either. So this is really interesting because, for instance, if I go to the pharmacy for any medication that's prescribed, let's say hypothetically it's a tablet a day, just for, to make the math easy, I'd get thirty tablets. So, what were you doing to get enough <laughs> medication to misuse them? Man, I'm I'm
1: gonna blow your mind, your listeners' minds here, real quick. You know what I was doing? I was telling my therapist I needed more. That's it. That's all it took. I would go to the the pharmacy, you know, Walgreens, CVS, wherever the case is. And I have my records, by the way, because you can request them. And I've done that. And uh, it shows that I was renewing what was supposed to be a 30-day prescription, sometimes even more than that, uh, in as little as 12 days. But that's a control system, isn't it? It is, and so the only way that you can do that is if the therapist gives the approval, and he gave his approval.
0: So he was, your therapist was not only your doctor, but he was your enabler.
1: In a sense, I think that by this point, um, you know, it would have been very easy for him to say, maybe there's a, a, a something wrong here. But at the same time, that's a very dangerous thing for him. So I don't forgive him. I don't want to give that impression. But I understand. I understand that for him to take a step back and say, I've clearly over-medicated this child at this point into having a serious dependency, both physically and mentally, on these medications, that is a thing that I honestly do not believe that this man was capable of.
0: So I want to you know I want to pause there again because um, this is an interesting part, and I think everybody out there right now, when they hear this episode, is going to want to going to have thoughts about this. So, from the perspective of a doctor, someone who has the um, permission to write prescriptions, who is should be um, intimately familiar with the medications and the drugs that they're prescribing and the the, the possible effects and the possible uh, tendency for or, or ease to become addicted and to misuse, one would think that if I'm supposed to give you hypothetically 30 tablets a month for pain and I'm giving you 90 and I'm assuming that since you were misusing these for a while that that's not one month, but this went on for a period of time. Um, you know, I, I mean, I was not in your shoes. None of us are as we listen to your story. But from the perspective of thinking about a doctor, uh, we've heard of cases recently where many doctors have done things like that. I mean, I can think of some of the famous ones like Michael Jackson and all these other people who got different drugs that, that were being overprescribed. One would think that the doctors well aware of the risks.
1: Yeah. So there's a couple answers to that. Number one. So again, I want to make it very clear. I'm not an apologist on this. I don't think uh, that it's okay if you overprescribe somebody. I do have an answer though. I, I sat down with a doctor about two years ago. Now I showed him my, my prescribing records and I said, doc, what would you say? What would you call this? And he looked through it all and he was reading the notes and he said, Jay, this is criminal. And and so we started having this conversation and he said, I'll be honest with you, man, this is a guy who now works in addiction. He said, when I went through medical school 10 years ago, he said, can you guess how much training I got in addiction? And I said, man, I have no idea. I, I, you know, I honestly have no idea. And he said, uh, two hours. And I said, like, a week, uh, a month? He said, no, two hours in medical school. Two In three years, two hours on addiction. So that's part of the problem is they're not being taught these skills. Now, the other side of the problem is, and again, I want to make it clear, I'm not forgiving doctors, but our current medical system is not set up to support them they are constantly patients are rushed through it's partly their fault but but part of it is our medical system does not support doctors the way it should and it's way easier for a doctor to spend 5 minutes with you figure out what the right you know prescription is for you give it to you and say good luck call me if this doesn't work you know i i have had that happen where a couple of years ago I was in a car accident and I, I went to the hospital cause they had, they thought I had a concussion. And, um, you know, they did all the tests and the doc walks in or the nurse, excuse me. And, and she hands me a prescription. And I said, I can't take this. I'm in recovery. I don't, I don't take prescription pills. And she said, I have to give you this. And I said, I don't think you do. And also if I have a concussion, I'll deal with it. Um, but I can't take these pills. The risk is too great. And she said, no, 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 you don't understand. I have to give you this. And this becomes a fight where we're literally yelling at each other. She leaves the room and she comes back with a doctor and the doctor does the exact same thing. And he tries to hand me this prescription. I said, doc, I'm in recovery. I will not take this. And he says, I have to give you this prescription. So he puts it in my hands and I tear it up in front of him. And he looks at me and says, you know what? Fuck it. I don't care. I gave you the prescription. I've done my job. And he walks out of the room. So that's a big part of the problem is an over-reliance on the medication. But the other side is we're just not supporting our doctors the way we should be.
0: Well, yeah. Okay. Um, Understanding that though... um I think about my interaction with my own doctor and how careful he is. And he's been my doctor for over, I don't know, probably 18, 20 years. And even to this day, when I, you know, when I speak to him about something, he says, okay, we need to give you some medication or something. He he painstakingly looks at my history. And he will not, you know, he's, he's, if he has to give something that's a controlled substance to treat something specifically, he makes sure there are a limited amount of tablets and there are no refills. Yeah, and and that sort of thing. So um, that's surprising. But be that as it may, I want to I don't want to digress too much from your struggles. So there's a point where you said you committed you are attempted suicide. What was it like living with because you know, you said you had depression, anxiety, OCD. During that dark period, what was it like?
1: Yeah. So, you know, people have asked sort of when I said that I had side effects, what does that mean? And and I think these chemicals that I was on that first for the uh, ADHD and eventually for bi- for bipolar disorder, what they were doing was throwing gasoline on the fires that I already had in me. We all have something, right? We've learned now, you know, it was, it, for the longest time, we thought of mental health as black and white. Either you're, you were mentally healthy or you had mental illness. That's not the way it's thought of anymore. Now it's a spectrum and wherever you are on this spectrum is different things. And, you know, we all have something. And, and for me, that's depression, anxiety, OCD. So throwing these chemicals into my brain was like throwing, fire, you know, gasoline on this fire. As an adult who's not on any of these uh, medications at the the moment, I'm able to manage these things. Now, I'm I'm not perfect, and I would never say I was, uh, but I will say that I'm able to manage them better than I was when I was on the medication. At the time, the reason things got so bad for me was that at this point, over half a decade, I had been told that I had a very serious issue of mental health that we call bipolar disorder. And I was put on every medication, you know, I was tried on seven, eight, nine different things and nothing helped. And not only that things were were, for me were getting worse. And so it's kind of understandable to say, all right, if that's your reality, you know, it's easy to see why at some point I would hit a tipping point and decide, you know what? This is my life. It's pretty horrible. And according to this doctor that I trust, it's not getting better. This is my life now, uh, and that's where I was at the time.
0: Okay, so um, more specifically, and if you're okay in, in recounting it, and I and I think this is important because and I'm only stressing my next question because it seems like I I get the. Extra TV uh email every day and you know what celebrities are doing, blah blah. And it seems like for the longest while I've, you know every other day, at least twice a week, there is some you know blob in there about some celebrity committing suicide. And we don't recognize that even the most famous people with 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 you know millions of dollars. Go through the same thing that that substance abuse and mental health issues do not discriminate. So, tell us a little bit about the time when you hit that low for and uh, wanted to or try to commit suicide, and what that was like, uh, including what stopped you or what saved you. Yeah.
1: So the literal. Um, sort of uh, where I was like the, the sort of literal window of my life. I spent, this was the summer of 2009 and, and I'd spent the last six weeks or so traveling around uh, the Midwest in, camping, following a, um, a a band around. I went to music festivals. I went to their concerts. Uh, so that was my life for about six weeks. And in that environment, I felt at home because I was struggling, but I was using a lot of drugs that, by the way, this is, needs to be said, it, we we have this picture of people who are struggling uh, with substance misuse that every moment is excruciating, and many are. I don't want to minimize that. It's really difficult, uh, both mind, body, soul. I mean, it, it, addiction takes a lot out of you and it's painful. But there are good moments in there too, just like with anything else. And so when I'm around these people, everybody else is also using drugs. There's people who are worse off than I am, who are better, and, and I just felt at home. And so then I come back to my real life, where again, I, I'm, I'm. It's dawning on me that my life has gotten to a point that I'm not. It, that I'm in trouble. Things are really bad. Um, using a lot of drugs, both prescribed and also not prescribed, and I gave up hope. And and, and so um, I dumped out what I thought would be a lethal dosage of my prescription pills and then called a friend to tell her what I was going to do. Uh, Lucky for me, that friend texted a couple other friends of ours who were nearby, and they rushed over and stopped me. And, and as I say, whenever I speak, my story could end there with a tearful admission that I needed help. Uh, just like we see in Hallmark movies, right? The thing is, it didn't. The next night I learned from my mistake the night before, and I took the pills first and then called the same friend and said, guess what I did? So uh, this time she again, texted the same guys uh, and they call nine one one. So nothing nothing stopped me. I did it. And, and lucky for me, um, I overdosed that night, but I was taken to the hospital. And by the way, if you want to hear a uh, part of this to blow your mind, I was led out of my house in handcuffs uh, because uh, you know, when you call nine one one in this country, who comes but the police? Um, and so I got let out of my house in handcuffs. I had my head slammed inside of a cop car when I was thrown in the back seat, uh, and taken to the hospital that way. And, you know, lucky for me and lucky for this cop that I didn't, uh, you know, completely overdose in his back seat. I can't imagine what he would have done if I had actually completed my overdose in the back seat of his car. But he took me to the hospital and, um, they uh they monitored me that night, and the next day I came to in a lockdown unit
0: well that that that's i'm gonna i'm gonna pause there again because that's an important um part of your story and i and I, and I think that in recent times to to the credit of what society is trying to do um there's been a lot of sensitivity training given to police departments around the country. In terms of recognizing the difference, and and I think um, you know, if in, in that kind of situation, they usually they are they're supposed to call for medical help, and when the medical help gets there, ambulance, um, they're actually in charge of the scene, not the police officer. Once it's been deemed that this person, you know, is is in is in OD or or, or or along the path to OD, but I can understand back then. Um, unfortunately, you know, and I'm sure that sense that insensitivity still exists today. But I can understand, you know, to them having to come out there for this call and looking at you and seeing, you know, oh, this guy took a bunch of pills. You know, the, our ignorance as human beings and our lack of our ability to understand what people are actually going through probably made them feel, you know, disgusted at you, like, you know, this guy even become all the way out here. He's wasting my time and and that's indicative of the treatment you received. Um, But now you're in the lockdown unit. How long were you in there?
1: I spent three weeks there. And, um, you know, it's, it's what you see in the movies. It's uh, no shoelaces in your shoes, except when you, we we had a gym and uh, they would give us our shoes back to, to, you know, go to the gym and, and um, no belts uh, showering with the, our doors at least cracked open so they could make sure that we weren't doing anything, you know, hanging ourselves in there or whatever. And, um, it, it's, it's a, a lot of things, <laughs> movies and TV get wrong. The lockdown unit, they get right. <laughs> it's, it's pretty much what you've seen.
0: Okay. So you, is that the, it was that your only bout with a uh, suicide or, you know, did it happen again?
1: No that was my only that was it um you know after that i I sort of had lost the ability to have a say in my life anymore so um i i was i, I was in the lockdown unit for three weeks and uh, was finally discharged to my parents' care, who then turned around very shortly afterwards and sent me to the long term care facility and um you know that is a whole <laughs> As they
0: say, a whole nother story. Okay, so before we get to that part, and we can touch on that a bit, um, as you reflect on this journey, as we're having this conversation, you know, you know, we always say hindsight is twenty twenty. So, in hindsight, what were some of the red flags that you saw that you know you'd like to tell those going through the same struggle that they should be aware of?
1: Yeah. So there's, there's a couple of lessons that I always uh, advocate on whenever I get interviewed, whenever I speak, whenever, whatever the case is. And number one is never be afraid to ask for a second opinion. I, I give the example that my aunt who is currently battling cancer and every step of the way she and her partner, And uh, in some cases, my mother, her her sister and others in her life have gone with her to multiple doctors, right? The doctor, Dr. A recommends, you know, surgery. And so they go to Dr. B, they go to Dr. C, they go to doctor and then they get, she gets the best care because she's making sure that people agree with everyone else's opinion. That doesn't happen in the mental health community. And still, that is still the case. If Dr. A says you have bipolar, well, then by God, you have bipolar. And we need to change that. We need to change this idea that a a label, as serious as that is, which, by the way, giving somebody the label of bipolar is essentially, I mean, that's as serious as saying to someone they have cancer. And yet nobody ever goes, wow, doc, that's that's heavy stuff, man. I I appreciate that. I'm going to go get a second opinion. That just doesn't happen. And so that's number one. I wish I had gotten a second opinion because who knows my story could be completely different if I had done that. Uh, So that's number one. And number two is just a a plea to everybody listening. There is somebody in your life who wants to listen. I guarantee you there is. Uh, And look, I know because I was there when you're in that situation, like I was, you alienate pretty much everybody in your life. So, So don't, (laughs) don't think that I don't know, but there were still people there in my life. I just never reached out for help. Please reach out. And I always say this whenever I speak, whenever I'm interviewed, if you truly do not believe there's anybody in your life, call me, reach out to me on my website, reach out to me on social media. Let's chat because as we say in this business, I would rather spend two hours talking to you today than two hours attending your funeral tomorrow.
0: Yes, absolutely. Yes. And then I'll, I will at this point, you know, let everyone know that on the episode, when this episode airs in the body of the episode and on the website, there will be your information, your website, et cetera. So they can do exactly that and reach out to you because that's what this podcast is all about. Empowering and sharing information and, you know, giving first chances to some people, second chances to others and, or whatever they need by hearing someone else's story to know that they're not alone, that their their struggle is not unique, and there's someone else in the universe who is going through the same thing, who has who has won the battle, and is there to give them support. So that's really important. Um, and reading about a little bit about you, you know, you 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 talk about choosing your struggle. What do you mean by that? <laughs>
1: Yeah, so choose your struggle is my hashtag. It's my the name of my business. It's the name of my podcast. Essentially, it boils down to this: when I was at my worst, this period we're talking about, I didn't get to choose what I was struggling for every day. My struggle was chosen for me by my circumstance, and that struggle was to avoid withdrawals, right? Which I didn't do successfully most of the time. You know, uh, I got to know the floor of my bathroom very well. Uh, my struggle was to get off the couch and just be a person that day. So those aren't <laughs> those aren't good struggles, you know. Nobody is choosing those struggles. But now that I'm in recovery, I get to choose what I'm going to struggle for every day. And my choice is this. My choice is advocating for an end to stigma around issues of mental health and substance misuse. My choice is for advocating for those who need the help to get the help they deserve. But what I impose on those who, who listen to me speak, the people that I coach is make sure you're making that choice for yourself, right? We live in this environment that too many people aren't getting to choose, whether it's that, you know, mom or dad decided you're going to be a doctor. And so now here you are, you're a doctor or whatever the case is you will never find that personal fulfillment if you're not making that choice. And I understand that sometimes, you know, circumstance makes it for you. Like I said, I was in that for a long time, but there are ways to actively re choose how you are making those choices.
0: Okay. That that's, that's really good advice. And in terms of people who are going through, uh, serious struggles and people who are going through uh, are at the beginning of this struggle people who are you know are maybe um, never really experienced it or never really acknowledged it until we they found themselves isolated in this whole pandemic and 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 you know that's that's an issue for a lot of people because you know I've I've, I've interacted with many people who you know part of their mental health was being very social was human interaction. And, and and that is something that has sort of dumped a mental health challenge on them involuntarily. So how could we all have better mental health practices?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful question. And there are a lot of answers to that. Um, so the number one tip that, that I would give is make sure you're taking a little bit of time every day for some form of mindfulness and, and, when I say mindfulness, for a, for a long time, if you heard the word mindfulness, the person was only talking about meditation. Now, don't get me wrong, meditation is wonderful, and a lot of people are advocates of it, and it and it can be really helpful. It's not the only way to practice mindfulness, and in fact, it's a pretty difficult way to to practice mindfulness. So there are a lot of other techniques. You can find this pretty easily by searching on Google. Uh, things as easily as journaling, um, you know, as, as taking a walk and being present with your your uh, current situation. These are different ways to practice mindfulness that are much more attainable to the average person than learning to meditate. Uh, so that's number one. Number two, uh, this is going to sound ridiculous, but it's the I, I it's like the number one tip for mental health practitioners: make sure you're getting enough sleep. It is. The thing that we overlook in terms of having the most impact on our health, both mental and physical, if you're not getting enough sleep, now, again, that's easier said than done, trust me, I know, but if you are finding that you are struggling, the easiest way to try to figure out, okay, is this something that can be corrected, is just go go to bed early, get some sleep for a couple nights in a row, and see if you're feeling better. And number three is exercise. Make sure you're taking some time. Uh, even if it's as, as easy as going for a short jog or a walk, uh, give give your body and your mind a chance to to be strenuous for a little bit.
0: That is that is really, really great advice. You know, I'm gonna add something to that before we uh wrap up this episode, and that is in thinking about everything that you've said. I can't overlook the fact that so many people are going through so many struggles and we are, as a society are so busy and so involved in our own world that we fail to recognize, you know, those around us, fr- uh, you know, family, friends, people that we interact with every day who are going through mental health struggles. I think that from all the mental health um uh, survivors and 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 and, and professionals that i've spoken to on this podcast and beyond you know the one common denominator i found is that many of them need someone to listen they need someone to hear their story they need someone to talk to not they don't need someone necessarily to solve their problem but they need someone to be expressive to would you agree with that
1: Oh, I definitely I you know, one of the so so one of the things that I do is I serve as a mental health coach and what that means is I spend time just doing exactly that uh just chatting with people. I do offer, you know, advice, but taking things that the the average person may have been working on with their therapist and saying You and I are going to work on these very surface level things so that you can work on the real, the heavy stuff with your therapist if you have one. Or, quite frankly, between you and me, a lot of the people I work with are either afraid of a therapist. You would be shocked by how many people still are afraid to go see a therapist, or they don't have access to one because of our insurance system, because their community doesn't have therapists. So, we get connected and I offer them sort of a toe in the water. And then some of them end up going to see a therapist, which is wonderful. There is no bigger success for me than if I've worked with someone and then they go see a therapist. That makes me so happy. Uh, but for everybody else, it's okay. Like, you know, we chat about things, and if I leave them feeling better, then I've done my job. So, you know, just being there for other people is so huge.
0: Yeah, and I think, that, you know, there's still – um some residual stigma in society, even though, you know, we've evolved a lot. There's still that stigma. Uh, People are in this place where they feel if they go to a therapist. And sometimes they're dealing with something that is never talked about or never made public or never even told someone in private. And I think there's a number of things that, you know, one is the admission to themselves that when they go to a therapist that they need help, that something is wrong. And then in some cases, they're concerned about the perception, you know, the public perception should someone find out that they went to a therapist, you know, for such a challenge.
1: That's definitely right. I, uh, you know, there's a a big part of my work is the End the Stigma campaign. Um, And and, and I I live that too. I, I didn't talk about my experience for the first five years of my recovery. And someone asked me not long ago, You know, why was that? Did somebody tell you, oh, you shouldn't talk about this? That's embarrassing or whatever. And and it knocked me on my heels because the answer was no. Nobody had ever told me this is a thing you shouldn't talk about. I had just internalized that from the society we live in. And and I had bought into that that stigma. And and so now a lot of what I do is this sort of conversation. Uh, I get up on stage. I have a speech coming up next week that is basically just let's talk about this. Let's normalize talking about these issues. So people feel more comfortable doing so.
0: And that is that is, that is, you know fantastic. That is great work that you're doing. It's something that we walk around each day taking for granted. And don't, we don't realize, you know, at, at different levels, there's so many of us, so many human beings, so many of the human population that are struggling with mental health at one you know level or the other. So, I thank you for this message to my audience. I thank you for the information. I want to let everyone know that, as I said, as I mentioned before, in the body of the episode when it airs and on the website, um, you'll be able to find Jay's information if you need to reach out to him. And if you feel that you need to, please do, because it it is important that we find people in common ground to help us through the struggles of life. We do not have to go through it alone. Um, so thank you so much, Jay, for being on the show. It's, it. I think you've been a fantastic guest, and and have offered um, a real level of empowerment to those listening who, you know, in the in their own quiet presence or not, have been struggling with um, substance abuse and, and mental health related illnesses. So thanks again for being on the show.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. I, I hope you know. I'm sure that we've done some good tonight.
0: Yes, we have. And and um, for those who follow my episodes, they know that I, I always mention that years ago, I wrote a few compositions and sometimes they're relevant. And whenever I find something that I wrote that's relevant, I end the show with it. So I have one that I wrote that I'm going to end this episode with. Um, and it came to mind because of the need for us to listen to people crying out for help. So I'm going to end these, this episode with this composition that I entitled, Listen. I got a call this morning. There was dead silence on the other end. The only thing I could distinctly hear was the anguish of pain and the thunderous silent cries for help. Ironically, these cries were not as a result of sorrow but the result of regurgitating despair that had now reached its pinnacle of expression and were now in search of release. It would have been easy for me to respond with corresponding deafening ears, but I was already aware of life's lesson of the tragedy associated with the ignorance of dismissal. These lessons had taught me the alarming truth of too many lives lost and how many, that could have been saved, but for a moment by us to lend an ear. I pursued the silence with a response of hope, an explanation of the glory of faith, the overwhelming truth of the existence of the Almighty and the eventual fact that is me. All of this while reiterating the truth that beyond dark, there is always a light, that after the rain, there is sunshine, That after the dark there is dawn and at the top of every mountain there is a peak. Encouragement without belief is transparent and empty. Faith without belief is wishful thinking. And humanity without love is vain. Yet the deafening silence still remained. I began to feel desperate, like I was not equipped to breathe life from my reality to theirs. What should I do? How could I possibly uplift the silent tragedy that was awaiting the world on the other end of this line? I decided now to simply listen to the silence and to make sure that the silence knew that I would be there until the silence was no more. Slowly but surely emerging from the depths of despair, from the absolute edge of no return, was the sound of life. And not just the sound of life, but the tremble of hope the belief of maybe, the sigh of redeeming strength and the soft cries of faith. Suddenly I realized that the cries were mine. Somehow I had managed to tear myself away from the important nothings of my life. I had devoted my faith and compassion to another. Who but for that moment would have lost their battle with life and more, most likely their chance to try again. My faith Had saved the faith of another. Not because I was incredibly talented or because I was particularly convincing, just simply because for one moment in time I was guilty of the selfless act of ignoring the meaningless importance of my world and taking the time to listen. say a very special thank you to my guest Jay Shiftman for joining me for this episode and for sharing such an important experience, something that's so relevant in our world today I also want to thank my audience and my supporters for your continued support of 247 Real Talk reminding you that you can listen to every and all episodes on your favorite ep- uh, podcast app or you can head over to the website at www.247realtalk.net if you'd like to leave me a message or if you'd like to be a guest in the show, you can email me at podcast at 247realtalk.net. That's podcast at 247realtalk.net. Until the next time, do take care of yourselves and each other.